the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the closing line, uh, walk with us in a movement yes, of the Australian yes. people for a better future. For a better future. It's yes. an extraordinary piece of writing, pretty much popped in the recycling bin. Oh, it, was, it was hauled out with the trash on a Friday night. Aboriginal people could well have said, to hell with you. You can take your constitution, you can take your government and get the hell out of our lives. Instead, what we got was people saying, we want to go beyond the past. We want to embrace Australia. We want to embrace a constitution that excluded us. I mean, heartbreaking, that generosity. And these shriveled, miserable, poisonous souls in Canberra just hauled this out and dumped it on a Friday night. It was a betrayal of the process and a betrayal of the Australian people who have said in poll after poll after poll that they are on board, that they want this, and they're betraying them. Utter betrayal. That is journalist and author Stan Grant. And this is episode 285 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Hi, I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is my show. Today, my guest is a great Australian, Stan Grant, the television news and political journalist. He's currently the ABC's Indigenous and International Affairs Analyst and Professor of Global Affairs at Griffith University in Queensland, Australia. He's here to talk about his new book, Australia Day. More about Stan in just a moment. If you are new to this show, welcome. Thanks for being here. Who am I? I'm Osher. Sometimes I work on the television. Sometimes I write books. Sometimes I ride bikes. In a few short weeks, we're going to welcome a new baby into this world. And I'll make this podcast every Monday and Friday. That's about it. That gives you a fair idea of where I'm coming from. What is this podcast? Well, it's a conversation. A conversation designed to hopefully help you make today a bit better than yesterday. Give you something to think about a little bit differently. Something in the next hour, I guarantee, will make you go, oh. Oh, right then. Yep. Yeah, I can see that. Well, that's a new way to go about things, isn't it? Yep. Absolutely. Guarantee that's going to happen to you today. It's actually going to happen a few times today. Uh, thanks very much to everybody who got in touch this week on the emails. Um, I do appreciate it. I'm not really on Instagram anymore at all. So if you do want to get in touch with me, email is the best way to go. Send us your email at gmail.com. Uh, a lot of great ideas about the show come through that that place uh, i know you know it's right there in your phone but i just i'm just not there anymore i had to take it off my phone you can listen to other episodes to find out why uh, send us your email at gmail.com which is where as well you can send the great pictures of where you're listening it's called a podsy it's like a selfie but it's a, a photo you take on your phone you're listening to this right now of what you're looking at right now where, where do you listen to this show a big fave came through the other day uh, someone going for a hike through the hills of mount kutha in brisbane I grew up in the shadows of those hills, so that was super special. There was another great one that came through from my former radio colleague, Dave Matthews, listening on Kings Beach on the Sunshine Coast the other week as well. You know what's interesting? I just named two places in Australia, and the origins of those names couldn't have been more different. I didn't plan that, but Stan and I go into that sort of thing in great detail. I think you know where I'm going with this. Uh, a quick thanks to everyone that rated and reviewed the show on the iTunes rating spot. I know that people listen. I know you listen in all different places, and I really appreciate that. But um, the the fact is that 
you know, the people that book guests on podcasts, they look at places like the iTunes ratings to see who's where. And the iTunes rating system works in a way that kind of deals with not only downloads and uh, subscriptions, but it also deals with engagement. So what really helps is I've got the first two. I've got the downloads, I've got the subscriptions, but yeah, pushing the engagement really will help us get up those, those iTunes charts. So uh, I want to say thanks very much to uh, Panda. Panda 78 is what they're called. I'll share over you so many people who articulate what I'm thinking without being able to find the words. Briggs talking about white privilege is a perfect example. Thank you, Osha. Thank you so much, Panda78. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That episode was super good. Uh, That's a couple weeks ago if you want to go back and find the episode with Briggs. Um, thanks very much to Kylie Fenno as well. Uh, I've been a regular listener for two years, over two years. I love, love, love this podcast. Osha's generous, genuine, and thoughtful. If you think he is only great hair and roses, think again. And join him on a marvelous discovery of humanity, pathways to success, and discovery without the woo. Yes, folks, there is science here. Oh, that's awesome. That's the best thing ever. Thank you, Kylie. That's exactly what I try to do. That's awesome. Thank you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. So let me tell you about my guest today. Stan Grant is an Australian television news and political journalist. He's uh, currently the ABC's Indigenous and International Affairs Analyst and Professor of Global Affairs at Griffith University in Queensland, Australia. He also writes regularly uh, for various columns editorially around the place. He's written a number of books, uh, two which absolutely stand out for me, Talking to My Country, and his latest book is Australia Day. You see, Stan is an Aboriginal First Nation Australian man. His father was an elder of the Wiradjuri people, a country that stretches across central New South Wales from Wagga Wagga and Leeton to West Wyalong Parks, Dubbo, Forbes, Cootamundra, Cowra, Young, among other places around the country. And Stan has spent much of his career abroad covering mostly conflict. Stan's witnessed the unimaginable horrors of war and he's lived for much of his life in countries far away from his own. These days, Stan and his family are back, and he's written a book called Australia Day, a book 
about not just a difficult day in our community, the 26th of January, which if you're from overseas, that's the day that we as a nation celebrate Captain Cook planting a flag and declaring this country for England. For some, it's the day that Australia as we know it began. For others, it's the day that Australia as they knew it ended. It's a complex thing to talk about in our community. There's a lot of emotion around what it is to be Australian and the role of the legacy of colonialism and what that has on us all, Indigenous or otherwise. And where do we go from here? It's a hot-button topic. People can get quite reactionary about it. It's this conversation that deserves a long and deep exploration. It's no accident that I'm putting this podcast out at the start of National Reconciliation Week 2019. So let's go. Come to my house, enjoy a cup of tea and a solid, fantastic conversation with a man that speaks as if he's freestyling poetry. My goodness, you can tell why he's good at his job. This man is an absolute storyteller and I'm honoured that he took the time to come to our apartment and have this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Stan Grant. Stan, I'm so grateful you came to my house. Thank you for being yeah, here today. it's a pleasure. I met the dogs, that's all good. Yeah, they are my assistant producers. Um, their job is to, to help my guests change gear yeah. from outside yeah. to inside. Yeah. Yeah. As, as you know, as a TV person, there's, there's someone who meets you in the car park and that's they vibe right. you up before you get that's to set. Right. They're the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're really quite good. Mate, your new book, uh, Australia Day, is it's, it's so extraordinary. Oh, thank you very much. Stan, thank you, you, thank you have you. a way of writing that has an aching lyricism to oh, thank it. thank you. Thank you. And the cadence of your writing mm-hmm. is just, it's just, it's, it's, uh, you can't put it down, man. And the way it paints, it just, it's like these giant brushstrokes that just, they just kind of go off the canvas into places. And before you know it, it's 10 well, pages later and you're like, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that because words matter and lyricism matters and beauty matters. And when you're trying to have hard discussions, hard conversations about things, you need to find the language. And the poetry of language is more important than the politics of language. I really believe that. And I spend a lot of time immersed in beautiful writers. I could read anything if it was written lyrically and musically. So when I came to, to write this, when I come to write anything, I think about how the words are going to sound together and there are many different words you could choose and you know the length of a sentence and the length of a paragraph and where to put punctuation all of those things create a a lyricism and a rhythm to language that helps to bring the reader into your thoughts and your ideas and and you know I owe an enormous debt to the great writers that I've spent a lifetime reading James Baldwin, the great black American writer, James Joyce, the Irish writer, um, Yeats, probably, you know, one of my two or three favourite poets, Czesław Milos, the, the, the Polish-Lithuanian poet, Albert Camus, you know, the French-Algerian uh, writer. These people had an economy of words and a lyricism that allowed you to enter into their thoughts. And that's what I wanted to do with Australia Day. So I'm really pleased that you got a sense of the musicality of the language it really uh, it definitely 
was that. It most definitely was that. And you can tell that it's written by someone who can stand in a blizzard and get inside the 10 count, suddenly get told in their earpiece, oh, my God, the satellite's down, you've got to go for three. (laughs) And then out of nowhere, you pull a three-minute editorial or get sold the same things, oh, my God, they've just, you know, something's just happened, we've got to wrap you in four (laughs) seconds, and then you have to find eight words that can sum up everything that has just happened. And a lot of work goes into that, as, as you know, you know, a lot of work, goes into that, most of the work is done off stage. Most of the work is done off page. You know, you, you, the reading and the thinking, you can never be too prepared. You can never know enough. And the more that you know and the more that you sit with knowledge and allow that to to permeate who you are and, and to sort of absorb language and ideas, the more prepared you're going to be for the blizzard, you know, when you do have to actually pull something out and meaningful. Anyone can speak drivel. Anyone can sit down and write something. But is it going to be meaningful? And and it doesn't have to be something that's going to, you know, sell a million copies or whatever. It has to be meaningful. It's what it's what you get when you look on a piece of art or you listen to a piece of music that speaks to who you are. And it's, it's beyond knowledge and it's beyond science. You know, science can tell us what something is. It can break down the elements of something. But it can't tell us why we feel something about that. That when I look on something like the Sistine Chapel, what it spoke to me, what it said to me when I stand in the middle of the Australian desert, you know, it's dirt and it's sky, and but it says something. And, and, I, and I think, you know, they're the moments that I prepare for. All the reading, all the thinking prepares me for that time when I can stand there and find the words to describe an inner feeling. And it, it is in that description that your job as as a journalist and uh, is is so important because you then reflect because you have this ability and this skill and this is what we rely on authors and songwriters mm. to do. Mm. It's like I can't do it, but the Flaming Lips. Do you realise? Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's it. I you know, like I can't write yeah. that. Wayne Coyne can write that, yeah. and I rely on that to go. Yes. Oh, how do uh, I feel about my wife? That's how I feel I, about my wife. I remember wife. listening to Yoshimi Battles. The oh, Pink Robots. I fucking love that record so much. And, you know, and and again, there's not just um, not just uh, the the music or the words. It's it's the combination of that and the sound of his voice mm-hmm. and the aching quality. I remember. You know, it's really interesting. You sort of reference music because I can't write without having a musical idea in my head. And uh, I remember years ago just being transfixed by Mercury Rev's Deserters song, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Which was recorded on 18mm um, film. So they recorded the music on film and it gave it a, a cinematic, expansive quality um, that just felt otherworldly. And, you know, that that's, that's what I sort of reach for. And you're right, you know, I can't do what these people can do, but I can do something that I can do. I think that's that's the other thing about writing or music or whatever it is. When you find your voice that is authentically and distinctively your voice, genuinely, honestly, ethically your voice, I think that covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't matter if you hit a wrong note. I don't need Neil Young to be able to sing in pitch. I need Neil Young to speak to me. And and that's what good art is, is the ability to speak genuinely to someone and touch their soul and embrace 
all of the flaws that are inherent in any work of art. And, and that's precisely what this, this book, uh, I feel, is doing. It's trying to embrace everything. Mm. And I think the timing of it is also quite apt. You could have put this book out four months ago in, yeah. at Christmas time. Yeah. Um, talk to me about releasing a book called Australia Day yeah. in the middle of the year. Well, the timing, you know, you've really struck on something there because timing really informed this book. I mean, what the book is, it's a love letter. That, that's what it is. It's a love letter to this country. It's a love letter to other Australians. It's a love letter to Indigenous culture. And it's a love letter to what I think is the greatest idea humanity ever had, and that is the idea of liberalism, of universalism, of a universal humanity, a common humanity, a liberating idea that frees us from our chains. Not an idea without its faults and one that has been misused and abused and continues to be, um, but at its essence, uh, an idea of freedom. And and that's what the book really grapples with. And I'm, I'm sitting there saying as an Australian of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal heritage in 2019, what is it to be called yourself an Australian? What is this experiment in liberal democracy all about? Where do we fail? How can we improve? How do we speak to each other and see ourselves in each other? And the timing was critical because the world right now is, is at a, a deep inflection point. I think the, the world that we've known and the modern world, the ideas of the modern world are under threat. Um, democracies in retreat. Uh, we know there is a rise of authoritarianism and the strong man is ascendant. Um, walls and borders are going back up. Uh, people are hardening into their tribes and it's a resurgence of sectarianism and arch-nationalism. Donald Trump's in the White House and Europe, you know, Britain wants to leave the European Union and Xi Jinping is is telling the, the Chinese people to hang on to their anger and their resentment at the West and what the West has done to them. And and this idea of, of universal humanity is really under threat. And so that this book lands, I think, right at that inflection point. Which way are we going to go? Are we going to be mired in resentment and vengeance and cling to the ugliness of our history? Or, or are we going to look our history in the face and then liberate ourselves from its legacy? And that's why the timing of this book is really critical. And, you know, everything finds their, their moment. I, I wrote this book. Uh, it was sitting in my thoughts for a couple of years and I'd, been, I'd written a few essays and given a few speeches and the, the elements of the book were there, but I, I pulled it together and, and brought all my thoughts together in about six weeks. I wrote the whole thing in about that period. It was towards the end of last year I felt inspired to actually say these things and then the fact that it lands now, I didn't want it out on Australia Day because that would have been engulfed by all of the emotion and the cultural war of that time. I wanted some distance. I wanted it to land now. The seasons are changing. We're going from summer to winter. It's a reflective time and it's a time when we can sit back. We've had Easter and we've had Anzac and we've had Christmas and we now can sit and think about who we are as a people. And, you know, books find their time and their space and hopefully this is for now. You're right, um, and and this is it's an interesting story because uh, you know 
uh, I use the word story, Yuval Noah Harari brings it up quite a bit, and that yeah. a nation's just a story. Yeah, it's just it an agreement between a bunch of people. And it changes. It cha- it, absolutely right. You know, it's the same way as money is just a piece in this country. Yeah. It's just a piece of plastic, but we have an agreement that this piece of plastic is worth more than that piece of plastic. Yeah. But And that's it's a story that we've created in our minds. And you're right, flags don't make a nation. Guns and ships don't make a nation. Politicians can write a constitution, but a nation is more than a set of laws. When you look at Australia, what what do you see? What do you see that it, that does make us a nation? I think we're still writing that story, and I think if there is a story that encapsulates Australia and modern Australia, the idea of who we are, it's the myth of terra nullius. I think a nation founded on the idea that people who'd been here for at least 65,000 years, and we continue to push that date back, but are people ostensibly formed in this place, of people of laws and politics and economy and art and music and love, and that those people had no rights to this place, that Aboriginal people were a relic of humanity to be cast aside and, and that this place would be a new nation, you know, as the anthem says, for we are young and free. Well, it's 65,000 years old. It's not young. So we're still writing our story, and I think that Terranullius myth sits at the heart of Australia. On the one hand, extinguishment of Aboriginal rights, and on the other hand, a lingering sense among Australians, non-Indigenous Australians, that they sort of don't belong. There is a, they're deeply unsettled by this place. 90 plus percent of us cling to the eastern seaboard. Think of the words we use for the interior of Australia. Out there, the outback, beyond the black stump, the never-never. You know, this is a place we don't go. Our myths about vanishing about disappearing, what happens to the explorers, our fixation on the lost child, Azaria Chamberlain, the Beaumont kids. This is deeply embedded in our psyche and I think it comes from that deep sense of unease that we know that this country was founded on a lie and a myth and we struggle with that. I touch on on the book um, on some of the writers have inspired me particularly non-Indigenous writers and filmmakers and artists who've grappled with that sense of place. What's Picnic at Hanging Rock if it isn't deeply a white dreaming story? These girls go out into the wilderness. They're ostensibly British girls in this harsh, foreboding place, and they vanish. And who those who are left are unalterably changed, and they become part of this landscape... When you watch the arc of that film, it starts out very British and it finishes very Australian. And there's even the symbolic hanging of the school principal. She commits suicide, a final sacrifice to this place and giving up all of those ideas of imposed Britishness to accept a place here. You know, I think, I think Terranullius is our story and we are still grappling with how to fill the empty space that Terranullius creates. You say it, that it's a myth, like we want to ignore it, but the very nature of Terranullius is in the country that yeah. we live in. Our the, the name on it 
uh, as you mentioned, these capital cities named after British politicians, <laughs> all right? Yet you go a few kilometers outside of this capital and every, you know, the place names are they're, they're indigenous, all right? Around? Like from where I grew up, Toowoomba, Yatla, yes. Markula, yes. you know, I mean, goodness, Kirribilli is the word I for know. a good fishing place. I know. What are, we, <laughs> what are we saying here? I've always wondered about this, that while Aboriginal people were being forced off this land, often massacred, ravaged by disease, rounded up and segregated and excluded, that the people who were entering into this place who were claiming this country, knew that there was something deeper here. And so that's why they named the towns those names. Where I grew up, it's Kootamundra, Wagga Wagga, Narandra, Gundagai. You know, white people were speaking Aboriginal languages and didn't even know it. Why were farmers giving their properties Aboriginal names? And there was something else going on here, Osha, as well, and that is that it wasn't just naming the place. We were creating a new people. There was mixing going on. There was white and black, you know, pe people being born of white and black. That's my family story. So there was something else going on here beyond the sort of, you know, extinguishment of rights and the segregation of people. There was this desire to reach out and find something else, to give it a name to marry, to have children. There was another story happening here. And it, look, it's a deeply embedded idea and one that we have not truly shaken off. And I think as Australians, we'll never really find a sense of belonging here until we do come to terms with the fact that you can't take a country off someone without that being felt by the land itself. It's a lovely line that Carl Jung, the psychologist once said, Land assimilates its conqueror. And this land has assimilated white people. And it has told white people, as much as they may want to ignore it or look away, that there have been great sins and crimes committed here and that they feel the sense of that. And I think it scares people. I wonder if when you start bringing this stuff up, and I, you know, I'm quite public about my thoughts on moving towards constitutional recognition. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I personally, mm. I, I feel our country should become a republic. Mm. Uh, I feel we should have an Australian head of state and it gives us an opportunity then to write a constitution that will basically, we aren't Britain. We might have tried, yeah. to, we might have tried to use British technology to live here, but it's clearly unsuited. Yeah. Not only the agricultural techniques, but also the housing, pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, there's a way to live here that has been here for many, many years that we could have, we could possibly still have the chance to use. Um, but that, that's, that's kind of where, where I am. And, and on, on, on January 26, I'm, I make no, I'm not quiet about how I feel yeah, about it. Yeah. And in the conversations that I have, people that are very upset that me as an immigrant am saying these things, I encounter a, a couple of common arguments. Um, why don't they just get over it? They already get enough. <laughs> and uh, exactly, and I know, I know, it makes you laugh. Oh, just forget about it. Just move on. Um, why are do you think? Why are they the common arguments? Because Australia is a place that people come to escape history. 
You know, you and I have lived in parts of the world where history hangs very heavily. In the United States, they live with a very deep sense of their history. They carry the scars of their history. They carry the scars of the Indian Wars and the, the, the genocide against Native Americans. They carry the scars of slavery. They carry the scars of the Civil War. It's in their monuments. It's in their literature. It's, it's in who they are. Speaking um, of place names, everything west of Colorado has got a Spanish name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> China, when, when I lived in China, history hangs so heavily there. Deep, deep sense of time and place and what has happened in that, in that place. In Australia, it's almost as if it's a place you come to leave all of that behind. Um, it was an enlightenment experiment. Australia was born in between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. It was an I, the idea of enlightenment and liberalism is that you can be freed from the bonds of those things. It was a penal colony which offered the prisoners, the convicts, the chance of new beginnings. Happened in my family, an Irish convict ancestor, never to see Ireland again. And when he died, he was buried in this soil and he left behind a new family, a very not Irish not an Aboriginal, something new, something different. Migrants who come to this country, post-war, refugees who still come here, there's a sense that we, we wear that history lightly and we throw it off. And then you're confronted with, on, this, on Australia Day in particular, with the reality is that you can run from these things, but you can't hide from them and that there is a deep history here on this land that people fought and died here. There were frontier wars here. They were called wars. You read the, the press at the time, they were describing them, they were reporting these things as wars, as a battlefield. There are deep scars here and the legacy of history here that Aboriginal people feel so strongly. And so when non-Indigenous Australians are confronted with this, on this day when we should be celebrating the sunshine and the beach and the barbecue and the freedom, they don't want to know about this. This spoils the party. Who wants to be the person that reigns on the parade? Australia doesn't deal with history well. And I think that's, you know, in some ways it's a blessing, but it can also lead to an erasure of the people and erasure of our story, and it leaves us feeling illegitimate. Is it because on some level we all know it? Yeah. Like I think there are, it's, it's, I'm not trying to at all compare this, Stan, but I, I think that uh, the closest I can come to it is around 2002 I stopped eating meat mm. and I noticed that when I said to people, I don't eat meat, mm. their reaction spoke more yeah. about how they in their heart knew yeah, I guess I am complicit in yeah. holding and killing animals and slaughtering sentient beings, sometimes in really shitty conditions. And yeah, I chop them up and I eat them. And in my heart, it's probably yeah. not great, but I'm going to be angry at you yeah. because you're yeah. not here with me doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think it's, it's that people don't, it's so much easier to just not have to confront these things. Go and buy your meat and, you know, pick from the butcher, you don't see the animal, you don't see the, the starving, you don't, you know, you, you, and you come here and you cook it and you eat it. And, and I think it's the same thing with this. We live in Australia and it's a wonderful place and it's free and it's prosperous and it's tolerant and it's cohesive and there's no war here and we can go to the beach and we can watch the footy, you know, and you can live a good life here. Who wants to be reminded about this other stuff? And for most Australians, they will never meet an Indigenous person. 
You know, six to seven out of ten Australians have never met an Indigenous person. And if they did, they probably wouldn't even know. This anthropological view of what an Aboriginal person is is so outdated. It's like imagining every, every Irishman has red hair. I mean, it's just ludicrous. So it doesn't touch their life. It doesn't fit into their frame of reference. It doesn't speak to who they are. It doesn't speak to the dream of, of the country for them. And so it's, it's unsettling. But I, I do think, and that's why it's important for someone like me to come along and say, we need to find the language that can open up the conversation. I'm not interested in shutting it down. You know, I, I understand the anger. I get the protest. I understand why a young, outraged Indigenous kid may go and burn an Australian flag on that day. I get it. But I also know that after that, what? What do we do? Because we are a minority, an extreme minority, and it's so easy for people to turn away. And I feel the responsibility, and, and, and it comes from a genuine place in my heart to open up a conversation, to find the words to bring people to this story. And the way that I try to do it is to say, it's Australia Day. Australia. It's yours and it's mine. And that I have a black ancestors and I have white ancestors. This is our story. And if, and if we are going to make this a country for all of us, we need to find a story that speaks for all of us. And I find when I, I approach it that way and I open up the space that people can come to it without feeling judged without feeling as if I'm, I'm, I'm blaming them or shaming them. Bring them in and allow them to see it through our eyes and become part of that heritage. That's what I'm trying to do. And what are the steps that we take? I, I was trying to think about what are some countries uh, of the, you know, colonised countries that, mm. you know, had their, you know, Indigenous peoples repressed and their uh, natural resources exploited, which they didn't get to share in, of which there are many around mm. this planet. Is there any country that's gotten close? I mean, when I think about, you know, I know that Canada tried a, a truth and reconciliation yeah, with their yeah. First Nations people. Yeah. Like, is, is there anywhere that's like, what, what, like, I'm, I guess I'm asking, it's like, what have we seen that could kind of work? What's the first step we take? First of all, the the sort of era of colonisation and empire building, it's, it's so recent. You know, you're talking a few hundred years. You know, I talk about in the book, it's, you know, my, my great great-grandfather, his grandparents would have been on the shore here in Sydney when the boats came. That's how close this is. This man, my great-great-grandfather, died in 1940. His grandparents, who he would have known, would have been young children on the shore when the boats came. It's close. It's impossible to imagine that the legacy of colonisation could be lifted so easily and that everything can be resolved and that we can reconcile and that, you know, we can sign treaties or enter into political agreements and we can close the gap. And it is a short period of time and a catastrophic impact that people have to emerge from. So we can sometimes be a little bit impatient with the timetable and think, well, oh, get over it. Why can't we move on? And how come, you know, so where is the example of where this, this works? There isn't one. There isn't one that says this is the best way to do it and we can solve all of the problems. But I do look around the world and there are places that I look to that give me a sense of hope. New Zealand, you know, when you look at the story of New Zealand, the founding document of New Zealand is the Treaty of Waitangi. 
it comes before the constitution. The governor at the time, after they'd signed the treaty with, with the, the Maori chiefs, said in Maori language, now we are one people. Now we are one people. Now, they still have problems, but they are the problems of a people who share a place together, that they are one and different. You can be one and different. And they have dual naming of places and they have dual language and their anthem is sung in both languages. I mean, that's a remarkable sign of a mature country grappling with the past uneasily still, but making a a conscious decision to find an identity in common that allows people to live together despite the differences and embrace the differences. Canada has done terrific work around treaty and agreement making and recognising the sovereignty of, of, of native people, same as in, in North America. None of them perfect, but it begins with the acknowledgement that the people were there, that they were human, that they had rights, and that you cannot just extinguish those rights. Our story is not that story. Our story is extinguishment segregation and an extinction they believed in the idea of extinction listen to the phrases you know smooth the dying pillow the myth of the last tasmanian as if you can just get rid of these people they will disappear there's never been in australia an attempt as there has been in other parts of the world to acknowledge the sovereign rights of the first people and embrace that and make that a part of the political foundations of the nation. So I look to those countries and I say, at least there is an acknowledgement of the rights and the sovereignty of those people. And everything begins from that. What are people so worried about, Stan? When it comes to something like constitutional recognition, what are people afraid of Who are, when it comes to constitutional recognition? What are they afraid will happen? And what can we all gain from constitutional recognition? I think when you begin with the idea that a people have no rights, you're left only with a story of assimilation. That's the story you're left with. If the story of New Zealand and Canada and, 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 and the United States for Indigenous peoples is a story of, you know, certainly one that's not unblemished, but a story of self-determination, of an acknowledgement of fundamental sovereignty, and even acknowledge, acknowledgement of the wars, the Indian Wars in America, the Maori Wars in New Zealand. There's an acknowledgement of these things and emerging from that is a sense that here are a distinct people that have a place in this nation and that uneasy as it is, we need to negotiate that. In Australia, there was none of that. At best, there was a belief that we would just be absorbed. We would become Australians like everybody else. And the refrain in Australia is always, why can't you just be like the rest of us? You know, aren't you Australians too? Well, being an Australian means different things to different people. And I think that's what disturbs Australians, is the idea that Aboriginal people may see themselves as a part of the nation and apart from the nation. And we can't hold those two things at the same time. When in fact, that's the lived reality. I am a part of the Australian nation and proudly a part of it. And I sit apart from that with a history and a legacy of segregation and exclusion and and invasion and dispossession. And I'm trying in the book 
to marry those two ideas. But it does scare people. And remember as well, Australia is, um, is the embodiment of the liberal idea, the, the idea of liberalism that we are individuals, that there is no place for group rights in a liberal constitution that there is no place for race in a constitution, that we should, the individual liberty is paramount. And I think that's really challenged by the idea that here are a group of people who are making an ethical claim on the state. How does a liberal democratic state acknowledge the ethical claims of a group of people? And it requires deep thinking. It requires people to look beyond 17th and 18th century ideas of liberalism and update it for a 21st century where there is a greater degree of pluralism, greater diversity and a demand, a political voice and a demand to be seen and to be heard. It's not beyond liberalism to marry the idea of group rights and individual rights. It happens in other parts of the world. But in Australia, it seems to be a real blockage. And you will hear from the conservative right but Art, Art, you should all be individuals. We have our parliament. You don't need a second voice. You should not have your group rights acknowledged. Just be like us. Close the gap. Get a job. Go to university. You know, live in the suburbs. Uh, yes, we'll have all of those things. But there are things that matter to us too. Preservation of culture, heritage, language, land, negotiation of rights around land that don't pertain to any other people. And a liberal democracy must be big enough to embrace the claims, the ethical and political claims of a group, a distinct group of people, that ultimately liberates the individuals in that group to take their place in suburban Australia and do everything everybody else does. But this nation needs to be founded in the 65,000 years that happened before the British arrived, and it's not. What always blows me away, Stan, is that, I mean, even now, I'm sitting across the table from someone you were born four years before it happened. I'm sitting across the table from someone who was alive when his very existence wasn't recognised mm. on this earth. Mm. And you as a human being were counted as fauna. Mm. And I can't fucking believe that <laughs> in your lifetime, yeah. we've gone from that through the 1967 referendum, through to, um, you know, the extraordinary leaps and bounds that happened yep. in the 70s in this country. Yep. And, and that i, I got to have hope. Like if we yeah, drew we a timeline, have have, have have if we drew a timeline of what was happening to between uh, European culture and Indigenous culture in Australia it, when it's, it's awful hell, you know, from the late 1700s and then here's this moment in 1967 and here we are in 2019. If that line, if we extend that line another 50-something yeah. um, years, where could we possibly be? I've, yeah. got, I've got to have hope. Yeah, and, and, and I do. And this is where I sort of break ranks with some other Indigenous people who see Australia as irredeemably racist and beyond salvation and reject the idea of Australia. And I understand where that comes from, but I, I can't sign up for that. That's not what I see. I know that my life is better than my grandfather's life or my parents' lives. I've had opportunities that they couldn't have had. And they've created this Aboriginal people have fought for this 
They've made Australia better. We fought for 67. Eddie Mabo fought all the way to the High Court to recognise native title. We fought for the apology to the stolen generations. We fight for reconciliation. We bring people to our side. We enlist the support of others and we fight to make Australia a better country. And it's a repudiation of them for me to not have hope, to see Australia as irredeemably racist. It is not irredeemably racist, but there is deep structural racism. And that's what we need to grapple with. And the structural racism that does not see the rights of the people, that still fails to see that we are not a postage stamp, we are not something to be hauled out at every ceremony, we are not there as an appendage to Parliament to carry out smoking ceremonies and clap clapsticks and do a dance and then leave the stage and let other people come in and run the country. We are a part of this country. We are the foundation of this country. So there are deep structural problems, but I have to believe in the idea of hope. Otherwise, I, why would I write? Why would I get up every day? I have to believe in that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I get sometimes the feeling that. People are worried that they see our country as pie. And if we give a piece of the pie that I'm eating to this person over there that my whole, certainly growing up in Queensland, man, I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, I remember as a kid coming home from school with jokes that I'd heard other kids laughing at and saying to my mum and my mum's face just turning grey going, uh, no, yeah. no, <laughs> yeah. we don't, no. And I'm five. Yeah. But. And let's not forget that apartheid was copied off of Queensland's racial separation laws. Um, Like Queensland under the nationals is a fucking weird place, man. Um, But like, so it's in, and there's people alive who were a part of that, people whose, you know, their influence still plays out upon the decision makers in politics right now. They're who are, they act as mentors and stuff like that to people in parliament right now. And there's, there's no denying that. Um, But there's this overall sense that, what I have that makes my life great is a piece of pie. And if I give some of the pie that I'm eating to this person that has, has been repressed or this person, you know, that, that I see in this other part of the country that I've never been to, there'll be less pie for yeah, me. Yeah. So I can't give them any of my pie. <laughs> yeah. But that's not it, is it? It's not it. It's like the old drawbridge mentality. You know, the last migrant in pulls up the drawbridge. No, we don't want any of those others coming in. It's not it. My idea has always been grow the pie. You know, that's, that's always been my idea. Bake more pie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, we, don't, we can't exhaust our capacity for innovation and for thinking new ideas. And, you know, our, our democracy is inexhaustible. Look what it's weathered. War, depression, 
It's resisted immigration, but it's had to embrace it. Um, we struggle with these things. We, we, you know, we, we, we man the barricades, and but we get there. We build a bigger country. We build a better country. That's the hope of liberalism and democracy, that it allows you, it allows that change. It is an engine of progress. So let's just expand the pie. I mean, this is the argument around constitutional recognition. The moment that this was flagged after the Uluru Statement, the idea that Indigenous people would have a representative body, what was known as a voice in the Constitution, that would be... A, a, a mechanism to advise, to inform the A's with Parliament on laws that were devised specifically for Indigenous people. Now, that's a very modest demand. I mean, very modest. Easily incorporated within the structure of our democracy. I mean, you know, we incorporate the rights of states and, you know, we have local governments and... You know, we can incorporate the demands of disparate uh, uh, groups within the body politic, within the nation. So this was an opportunity with the Uluru Statement to create a more capacious liberalism, to expand the pie, to open up the idea of Australia. No one's losing anything. And, and you know, what about what we bring to it? This is it's not a zero-sum game. Aboriginal people bring great things to this country. It would be unthinkable to imagine the Australian story represented anywhere in the world that did not start first with an acknowledgement of the first people. When we we have our national sporting events, you know, when we opened the Olympics, Aboriginal people were part of that story, the beginning of that story. We bring things to this nation. And I think that we can grow the idea of what Australia is without taking anything away from anyone. And when you break it down to a dollars and cents thing as well, which people often do, and they'll go, look how much money we spend on Aboriginal affairs. Well, you know, that's what we pay our taxes for. We are Australians and often Australians in dire need. And that's what we pay tax for. You know, we pay tax. Tax is a compact in the nation that I will contribute to look after my fellow countrymen and women. So Indigenous people, where there is a great need, do have a demand on the resources of the state to meet those needs, to build hospitals and roads and infrastructure and to create employment opportunities and do all the things that we do in a, in a nation state. So this idea that we carve up the pie and this is mine and this is yours. No, we share in a nation. We share in its wealth. We share in the hard times and the good times. Aboriginal people signed up and fought in the wars for Australia, even when they weren't citizens. We put our shoulder to the wheel. We've marched and protested and fought and loved alongside each other. And we are part of a nation. And to see it as something that you carve up and you hold on to is a miserable idea of nationhood and when you mentioned like how much there is to gain from our country and embracing this part of our of our history which we just deny but as i mentioned before it exists all Mm. around us you know i can't help but think and i've been really lucky to have spent a a bit of time out on country as it Mm. were and um on particular communities and and i speak a lot with um 
Joe Williams about. Oh him. yeah, yeah, he's Joe my cousin, Williams. Joe. Yeah, he's a Wiradjuri. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our, our grandmothers are sisters. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. He's an extraordinary man, and he yeah. speaks. He speaks a lot about the incredible spiritual wealth that is to be mined yeah. from the just eons of thinking and yeah. culture and ways of dealing with the parts of humanity that people in ancient Greece grappled with and a lot of our societies based on, you know, their solutions to it. But this, exactly the same problems were happening within these societies and in these communities. And the solutions and the ways of, of, of being humble in the face of the earth and being, you know, careful around yeah. each other and, and respecting each other, it, it just the, the opportunity for us to gain from that spiritual learning of this is so wonderful to be explored. And especially at a time when there is a yearning for this. One of the things I think that we've seen... Uh, in recent times has been, you know, we're experiencing the limits of liberalism and freedom as well. You know, the idea that you are free to indulge your every whim and wish, that you are not beholden to any community, family, faith, it unmoors us. Deeply, we are social people and we, f we need a sense of community. I think what happened, particularly post-Cold War, Francis Fukuyama, the American political scientist, famously declared the end of history, you know, that history had reached its zenith, that there was this moral arc and that now liberal democracy had triumphed over communism, the great ideological battles were done and we'd enter a new era where we would be unbound from that past and free to create this new world. What we got instead was a sort of neoliberal idea that elevated commerce above everything. Commerce was elevated above culture, above community, above art, above faith. The nation state lost its hold on people. Look at the technologies that developed in the past 20 plus years. Companies like you know, Facebook and Amazon with these sort of peer-to-peer -peer companies that whole business model is built on denying the sort of sovereignty of the state. There is no community in any of those things. It's a purely transactional relationship that you have. And even Facebook that sort of imagines these communities and friendships to life, there's nothing real to any of it. And I think there's a blowback against that unfettered neoliberal idea of freedom where you are unattached from anything. And this is where progressives, I think, particularly have run out of a story. You know, the progressive liberal idea of universalism and cosmopolitanism that I'm a part of and you're a part of and we can live anywhere in the world, we can speak other languages and we can marry other people and we can, you know, live apart from our communities and our cultures and we don't have to believe in religion if we don't want to. And, you know, that has its limits. And at a certain point, people draw back and they want the comfort of community and home. And they want the certainty of faith. Even if that's an illogical thing to other people, they want the certainty that brings and the peace it brings to their life. And we're seeing a real blowback against that sort of rampant liberalism that ultimately believes in nothing and is untethered from community and belonging. And I think in Australia, the answer to that is sitting right here. There is a community of belonging here that is 60,000 plus years old that connects you to a sense of place and belonging and that is generous enough to open up to all Australians. So 
At a time when people are casting about and asking questions, don't look to the ugliness of tribalism that a Trump will throw up or a Xi Jinping or a Putin will throw up, but look to the community of faith that's built on the ordinary virtues of human beings entering into a deep sense of belonging to each other in a place that they call their home. And in Australia, that's rooted in this 60,000 plus years tradition. That is everyone's tradition here. And I, I guess to be given permission to yeah. call that mine as well, mm. I look at white guys in New Zealand in the last couple of weeks for horrid reasons mm. do the most goosebump-inducing harkas, yeah. all right, and they do it because it's theirs, man. Yeah, it's theirs. They do it because it's theirs. Yeah, because All their right? anthem speaks two languages. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm covered in goosebumps yeah, right now. Like, amazing. where's my fucking connection? Yeah. Where's my permission? Why can't I have, yes, I'm, I didn't come here. I was brought here as a kid. Where's my, that connection to the people that were here? And at the same time as doing this haka, you're respecting the, the land, you're respecting the people, yes. you're respecting the, the tradition. And you're like, I'm going to use what you use to say how I feel because yeah. this, is, this belongs to my country. Why am I denied that? And it's also saying these things matter. Fuck yeah. You know, we can, we can become so blasé about these things, almost as if community and culture was really passé, that we are these sort of, you know, this this phrase that neoliberals used at homo economicus, that we are just economic man, that we are just involved in an endless transaction and that rights don't matter, it's, it's the market that matters. And that ultimately leads to a an atomized and soulless existence where we live apart from each other. What, what these rituals, and I, you know, you mentioned the haka, I get the same thing when I go to communion or when, you know, when, when, I, when I go to mass. You know, when you're sitting there and you are part of a deep tradition, any of these traditions that are time-worn and honoured, that connect people to a sense of being and place and gives you a language to express that, they're powerful things. You, know, you look at the traditions of you know, Jewish people, for instance, you know, the Shabbat meal. What Every a, Friday, man, the community comes together. It's amazing. Thing. What a wonderful thing. And that people can go and share in that and enter into that tradition and that heritage. These things matter. And the Haka matters. And they can perform that because they have answered that question, who are we? They've answered it. They answered it with the Treaty of Waitangi. We are one people. Many differences. We are one people. Who are we? And in Australia, we haven't answered that question. We are not just a collection of people who come here and pay their taxes and get, get a, a visa or take out citizenship or, you know, a country's not a hotel. You don't just come and make, you know, pay your bill every, you know, settle your account and that, that's enough. You've got to believe in something. And, and that's where we're at in Australia, you know, this idea that we can believe in something and the rituals. And we have welcomes to country now, which, you know, can be a deeply felt and, and deeply expressed sense of connection to place and honouring the people who've been there. Far too often, though, they become really just ritual, you know, they, they become a habit. That's just something that we do. Let's get this out of the way and then we get on with, you know, whatever else we're here to do. We need things that matter and they need to have meaning. You know, we, we see in some Indigenous 
um, sports now. You know, they'll, they'll Indigenous teams will perform a, an Aboriginal war cry, and it wouldn't be great to see non-Indigenous Australian athletes involved in the same thing. But you can't just create tradition. You can't invent it. It's got to come from a place that's meaningful. And until we've dealt with the Terranullius question, until we've dealt with the emptiness question, until we have fundamentally recognised that the sovereignty of Australia begins with the sovereignty of the First People, not the extinguishment of it, until we deal with that, how can we have the rituals that you want, the, the things that you want to be able to say, this is mine too? It was. It's going to take great leadership to get us there. Stan, the Uluru statement from the heart, uh, which is a beautifully worded document. Beautiful. I know you. I know you had a, a deal. You know, a great deal to do with it. Um, the closing line. Um, I wrote it down because I couldn't. I couldn't get enough of it. Uh, walk with us in a movement yes, of the Australian yes. people to yes. a for a better future. For a better future. It's yes. an extraordinary piece of writing, which pretty much popped in the recycling bin. Oh, it was, it was hauled out <laughs> with the trash on a Friday night. You know, this, this government without without imagination, without heart, dragged it out with the trash and dumped it, summarily executed the thing on a on a Friday night, treated it with utter contempt. It was it was disgraceful. And you know, you can't have politics without poetry. The great pol- political leaders are the ones that understand the song and the story of a nation. They tell that they, they speak with the poetry of the nation. You know, when Lincoln could deliver the Gettysburg Address and could say that, you know, that democracy of the people, for the people, by the people shall not perish from the earth, that, that, that you know, when Churchill can say to the British people when they're on their knees that we will fight them on the beaches, we will never surrender, that mattered to them. He spoke something to them. You know... There was no sense in Australia that they understood the poetry of those words, walk with us, and that when when we do this, that we will walk in two worlds and our children will be a gift to this nation. This is beautiful language. This is the language of generosity and inclusion. You know, Aboriginal people could well have said, to hell with you. We want no part of this. You can take your constitution, you can take your government and get the hell out of our lives. You know, but instead, what we got was people saying, we want to go beyond the past. We want to embrace Australia. We want to embrace a a constitution that excluded us. I mean, heartbreaking, that generosity. Heartbreaking. That I always say, you know, Aboriginal people have carried the heaviest load and walked the farthest distance and they do it for other Australians. And that's what that document did. And these shriveled, miserable, poisonous souls in Canberra, without an ounce of poetics in their being, just hauled this out and dumped it on a Friday night. It was, it was a betrayal of the process and a betrayal of the Australian people who have said in poll after poll after poll that they are on board, that they want this, and they're betraying them utter betrayal when it comes to politics when it comes to leadership and as a professor of global affairs you probably will relate to what i'm talking about that the very nature of the political process the very nature of what it is to do that job often keeps the best people out of the job oh it does but particularly now that 
democracy has become so pitifully corrupted by big money and big interests and, you know, the political party machine. You know, someone asked me the other day, will we ever have a black prime minister? There was a documentary on the ABC about this. And, you know, I said, well, just do the maths. There's no, there are some Aboriginal people in Parliament now, but frankly, there is no Aboriginal person in Parliament now who will be Prime Minister. Just isn't. So we need to get someone there. They need to be the right age. They need to work through the party machine. They have to be able to withstand all of the the viciousness and the nastiness and the backstabbing of politics to get into a position of seniority and get into a position of leadership and then to be able to go to an election and win. We're 25, 30, 40 years from even getting close to that. I won't see this in my own lifetime. You know, so how do we get the right people into this into our politics when the processes themselves keep the best people out. I mean, what does it take to get, you know, to get pre-selection, to work your way through the party machinery, to stand, to get the votes, to get in? You know, I've been fortunate. People have come to me on a couple of occasions from all sides. Yeah, of you've been asked by everybody. <laughs> yeah. Would I, would I actually run? I think you also have to be honest with yourself, and I've had to be honest with myself and say that, is that in my soul? You need to be a political warrior. You need to be prepared to kill or be killed. It's a nasty, brutal business. Um, there's no place for the faint-hearted, and probably no place for someone like me who puts, you know, poetry above politics. But how do we get the best people into our system when the system is designed to keep often the best people out? We have these careerists people who've worked their way through the party machinery, who've worked as a staffer for a minister or you know, a think tank and have you know, then got into the party and got a seat in the back bench. I mean, you know, all of that. And then there are lobbyists in the off-season and they come back, <laughs> they oh, come back in the on, when, the, when the season, when the game's on. You know, and, and look, we're in danger globally of losing democracy, not because of a threat from without, even though there are big threats outside, but often because of what happens within and how corrupted the political process becomes. I mean, could you imagine being, you know, who's going to get elected president of the United States without the backing of big money? I mean, Obama was not a wealthy man, but he had the backing of big Chicago money. And, and you know, then he had to reward the people who backed him by giving them jobs, all the Goldman Sachs people who went to work in his administration. And then during the financial crisis, he had to bail out the banks. You know, when the debt was called, he had to pay up. This is the problem with our politics now. Democracy's been corrupted by big interests, big business. We're not going to have a train driver anymore or a shearer become Prime Minister of Australia. You know, it's going to be someone who's gone to a private school, um, you know, gone to work, uh, gone to university, maybe a Rhodes Scholar, comes back, works in politics and never has an experience of the of what we see as the real world. There's a... Is it, and not only are those those threats very very real right now, but there's a, also the the extraordinary threat of democracy can only exist when there's a free press. Yes, and the free press is just it's it's like sulfuric acid on a piece of skin when you put what Cambridge Analytica yeah. and Facebook is yeah. is doing to our democratic process, to our ability as just lay people. You know, I'm not a professor of global affairs. I am not, I am just someone that you know watches the news and feels that doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. And then goes and finds out about it. Yeah. Reads but about it. I'm I I probably am someone who probably cares more than the average punter. Mm. The average punter is just like, 
I've got kids to get to soccer yep. practice. Yep. My, I've, the milk's going to run out. I've got, to, well, I've got to vote on Saturday. Yeah. Fuck. Okay. What's Facebook <laughs> telling me? Yeah. All right. Yeah. With absolutely no concept that what they're being fed by this thing in their phone is algorithmically designed and, and yeah. is, is hacking their brain and put them inside not only a filter bubble but also a preference bubble yeah. where they never have to be confronted by issues such as the ones we were talking about because they've simply defriended or ignored enough articles about that. They just never see them. There's this great philosopher, um, French philosopher, uh, Bernard Lévy, and he, he talks a lot about this and he talks about... He, he went back to the development of the the modern prison, the panopticon, and this idea that you can have one tower in the centre and sort of have a view of everybody all the time. Everybody's within your view. And he said this is what social media was built on. This is what companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon and others are built on. The prison, the model prison, the panopticon, the idea that you can have this all-seeing eye at all times of everybody. And that's sort of what we've created. But the prison sends me cat's videos and keeps me in touch yes. with my cute nephews. And, Why do I want to turn it off, what? Stan? And we surrender our liberty so easily. We surrender to these things. We give in to them. We accept the logic of these things. And it's look, it's, it's very dangerous and it erodes... This, this is all part of the, the neoliberal experiment. You know, Margaret Thatcher was right, and she adopted you know, one of the great champions of neoliberalism, and she said, economics is the method, but what we are doing is changing our soul. She knew what she was doing. They knew what they were doing. It was hollowing us out. It was, you know, she said, there is no such thing as society. So there is no community. There is no society. There are hollowed-out individuals who then find their full expression in the strange world of sort of social media and Facebook and, and we buy our things on Amazon and Google and we never have to connect to each other. We never have to see each other, but they're watching us all the time and they're into our minds and they know what we buy and they know what we think and they know what we read and they tailor the messages for that. And then you get people who come along and, 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 and capitalise on those things to feed us the information that play to our prejudices and our fear and our anxiety and that's what we're seeing in, in our world right now and it is very very scary and remember one of the great sad things i think in our world has been the loss of the local media the local newspaper the local radio when we were in touch with each other when you could connect to what was happening in your community and they could report on what was happening in their local councils and all the local newspapers are gone. All that local media is gone. It's a concentration of media ownership. There's no diversity of media ownership. And people no longer know what to believe and they no longer have faith in any of this. So they'll turn to anything and they'll turn to the thing that most plays to their prejudice and their fear and their anxiety. And that's what's rampant on social media. It's super dangerous and super scary. I am terrified what will happen when someone like the say for example the new fellow that's in charge in brazil yeah, yeah, yeah. has a sit down with zuckerberg and says listen man how about you share some of that stuff with me mm. and then you've got this totalitarian kind of strongman guy combined with the mass surveillance but huxley style everyone yeah. in society is fed so much yeah. of what they want to see and it it's makes, it's comfortable it, so they don't look, care it makes our life so easy and it makes us easily governable 
That's what happens here. It makes us easily governable. And how much... We, we haven't seen... This is the beginning of the process. Yeah, yeah. Artificial intelligence is, is the next stage. You know, when we lose our place as human beings, you know, when our humanity itself is superseded. And that we're really on the cusp of that right now. And what greater tool of authoritarianism could there be than artificial intelligence, something that is smart and free thinking, but something that can be controlled by those who have the mechanisms and the power to control these things. Yeah. And the rest of us, it just makes our life easier. So, of course, you know, the robot that cleans up and, and stocks your fridge and does all those things, but it's also sending information back all the time. Oh, Osha read this book. Do you know what he was watching? He had this conversation today with his friend. This was said on the phone. He drinks this now. Why does he drink that and not? All of this information gathering that feeds back and all of these things that are designed to make our lives much easier, ultimately become we become slaves to these things. So it's, easy to shape our behaviour. That's that's oh, the, that's it's the so thing. Easy. That's the thing. It's these algorithms have found a way. And listen, we're all part of it. Yeah. I, you know, I get in the car. I had to come here today. Bang! Go to Google Google Maps. Put in the address and I'm here. So they know, you know, someone knows now, know, oh, this is yeah, where he's gone, he this is what he's doing. Yeah. This is the world we live in. It is so difficult to even imagine a world beyond that because it makes things so easy for us. Mm. It, it is an easier world, you know, but does technology defy nature or does technology harness nature? And that's the big question we have to ask. If, techno if we allow technology to defy nature, Ultimately, we become serfs. You know, we are superseded. Yeah. If we allow technology to harness nature, we remain integral and central to our own destiny and our place in the universe. If we don't, it can all be gone. And the authoritarians know this and they, they know which buttons to push and they're harnessing this information and this technology in new and incredibly powerful ways. And it's almost as if, yeah, well, we're prepared to surrender. We're prepared to give up on these things. It, yeah. The, the, the great example, uh, you speak of the AI, um, Roger McNamee writes about it, that mm. um, there was a period a couple of years ago where people thought, my phone microphone my, must be yes. listening to me yes, yes. because I'm starting to see ads for that thing we talked about yes. the other day. The fact, and this is how scary it is, Stan, it's not listening to you, no. but it's just it just knows that the example that he gives is the person who bought, say, for example, a 2017 Toyota Camry, here's the 24 things that they did before they clicked on that Camry link. So yeah. they know if you're at, at number five or number six, they're like, we know yeah. where you're going, pal. Here's an ad for a Camry because we yeah. know you're going to ask for one in yeah. a day from now, but here it is. And, and what do people who buy Camrys like and, you know, where do they usually live and exactly. what sort of, what, you know, are they mostly white people? How old are they? Yeah. You know, all that stuff. And look, you know, these things can make our lives much easier and, you know, the modern world is an incredible thing and, and you can't sit astride from this technology. But we also have to know that we don't have to surrender to it. Mm -hmm. the, the great fear, of course, is that these things lead inevitably to conflict. You know, um, look at the Gutenberg press, you know, the great sort of revolution that actually gave birth to the modern idea of nations, you know, that nations suddenly started to be formed around communities of communication that we can talk to each other we can tell a national story um the the instruments of propaganda you know the, the it it ultimately was complicit in in the 30 years war and what emerged after that the microphone think of the microphone without the microphone you don't have 
Hitler, potentially World War II. The microphone magnified this puny little voice beyond the beer halls of Munich. Suddenly he could speak to everybody. And in the Twitter age, it suddenly meant that Donald Trump can be out there sending misinformation and talking to people directly. All of this technology ultimately leads to huge political shift. And the big concern is that when you have a break in technology of this sort of magnitude that reorders our society, that you ultimately end up in conflict. And where we're positioned today with the rise of authoritarianism, harnessing the power of artificial intelligence, using social media, meddling in international affairs and elections, there's no this loss of faith in institutions, democracy and truth, and ultimately you end up in a situation where we don't believe in anything, and that can lead so easily to conflict. People can be conscripted to carry out the worst atrocities when they no longer know what to believe. You are clearly a man that thinks a lot. Too much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You wouldn't be in your job, you wouldn't have been in your career where you're not so curious. Yeah. All right. And I know what it is to be curious and sometimes I can get too curious and the truth will cascade upon me and I can end up in a lot of trouble. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, I was going to ask you about that. How do you keep your head above water as someone whose job it is to see the true horror of so many things and go, how am I going to talk about this to someone enough so that they won't so they'll get it, but not too much so they'll turn away because yeah. it's important. And also you look after yourself mm. so, because we can be so damaged by this this process. I mean, what you see and what you read, it you, you need to have a real sort of perspective and a handle on this. And I have some fundamental things that I believe in. You know, I have a culture and a community that I can come back to that nourishes me and gives me a sense of my place in the world. I have a woman who I love and I have children who I love and a family that is central to my life. And these things I know are the most important things. But I I do spend a lot of time thinking and worrying and and wondering about the world. But I try to hold on to a sense of the beauty of the world and the beauty of humanity. And again, that's why I come back to the the beauty of words and music and art and those things that elevate the human soul. It's not something you can buy. It's not something that can be traded. It's not, you know, something that can be harnessed by despots and authoritarians. In fact, they hate it. They fear it. If there's one thing the authoritarian fears more than anything else, it's love. They hate love. They are because love is freedom. They can't, when they can you know, when they can't control who you love, they can kill you for it, they can lock you up, but they know they can't extinguish it and it, it kills them. You know, that's what destroys these authoritarian regimes is love and the people who have love in their hearts. So I really sort of cling to, to those things and try to nourish my life and enrich my life with those sort of positive sort of inputs, you know, stuff that's going to, to lift me up and elevate my spirit. But, you know, I've been very damaged by... Um, these things that I've done and, you know, things that I've seen and being a reporter in the world, you know, seeing bodies blown to bits, you know, looking into the face of real evil, being surrounded by that, immersed in it to the point where that ceases to be a foreign world and becomes your world. You know, I inhabited that world of war and terrorism for more than a decade. You know, I lived in the brutal regimes. I saw totalitarianism, authoritarianism up close, and it starts to poison your soul. And I I got to a point where I couldn't see 
what was real and what wasn't. And I'd, I'd come back from reporting in Pakistan or Iraq or Afghanistan or you know, China and I'd come home and I couldn't make that switch. You know, I'd open the fridge and if there wasn't milk in the fridge, it was a catastrophe. The world is against me. This is an ugly world because there's no milk in the fridge. You know, I, I stopped playing my guitar. I stopped listening to music. And, you know, Tracy, my wife, would say to me, look, there's something wrong. You're not, you're not happy. You're not enjoying life. And I'd say to her, you don't know what the, what the real world's about. You're the one who's lost touch with reality. I know what reality is. I live in reality. You live in fantasy land. You know, this warped view of the world that can come from being surrounded and immersed in the ugliness of the world. And I went through a very, very, very dark, dark period with that where I had all of those fantasies, those horrible ideas of taking your own life and there's nothing left to live for. And I, I went through it all and I had to get help. I had to go and talk to someone. I, I had to go on medication to even out the, the, the chemicals in my system. I was suffering post-traumatic stress disorder and, and depression. And, and remember, I'd lived with this stuff growing up. I'd been on Simmer since I was five or six years old, watching this stuff around me, seeing the brutality of what was happening to Aboriginal people, seeing people die too young, living with the sense of being an outsider and fringe dweller and marginalised and told you're worthless. And, you know, I carried that stuff with me. And then I go and report on war and I look into the faces of refugees and I'm back home because they remind me of my uncles and my father and what we went through. So those lines between what was reality and what was my world and other worlds became very blurred for me. So I'm very conscious now of having the time to myself, play guitar, go for a swim, go for a run, watch a movie, enjoy a meal, go back to the books, think about the world, and you know, embrace all that stuff, but watch a football game, go for a walk, you know, get that balance, restore your soul, and then go back into battle, you know, to, with, with what's happening in the world. Does it make you... Uh, better at your job when you have that drawdown period? Uh, I was really good at my job when I was at my worst. You know, That's the shitty part, isn't it? I know. Because you're know. like, because you're, you're, you've got all this stuff so, that is unnaturally. I was Superman. Yes. I could work for 20 hours a day. I was fearless. I could be up all hours. I could absorb information. I was hyper vigilant, hyper aware. No, I mean, you know, there were. In, in fact, a lot of people had I was working with had no idea that I was going through all this in a term, turmoil because I was I was on top of my game. I You're was a birthday sparkler, man. You're like, Bright. yeah, 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 yeah. I was nailing it. But then I'd go back and I'd have this, you know, this churning in my gut, pounding headaches and the lethargy, and and then I'd get back up again and I'd go and I'd work for another twenty hours. And look, you can really perform incredibly well under the greatest pressure and stress. In fact, better. So, you know, I, I think what happened after that, you know, event and, and luckily in the sort of oh, five or six years since I went through the worst of that now, but, you know, I, I, I managed to get off the medication. I got routine into my life. I, I built a, a structure around my life that would insulate me from the worst of those things. And I'm prone to melancholia and I you know have a more reflective nature so you know those dark thoughts are going to enter into my life but I know where to put them so I'm I'm a better person I'm better to be around I'm better for my family and and you know it's opened up other ways of seeing the world and I do other things 
But that manic energy you get when you are actually at your worst, and you know what else, Osher? It's really strange, but sometimes I, I have a nostalgia and a fondness for that period, particularly when I was going to see the psychiatrist and going on medication and, 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 you know, really being treated for the worst of that sort of depression. Because at that point, I was in a battle then. That was a battle to save my own sanity, really. And nothing else mattered. And I look back at that period now and it's like, that was sort of a good time to face those things down and to go through that. And for that period, all I had to worry about was actually just getting better and evening out my life and, and starting to deal with 10, 15 years of compounded you know suffering and misery and war and ugliness and i look back at that now i think that was actually quite a a good thing to have to have gone through but i'd rather be where i am now well i can relate because it it gives you an extraordinary sense of control Mm. because it gives you uh it was explained to me as like once you get that when you're in that space you're like i am reacting to the world because i have no control over it but then if you have that locus of control if you start to bring those things back into i'm going to choose when i go to bed tonight oh you know the control became a really important thing oh yeah i i i became obsessed with time that that was my obsession i think at the the height of all of that when i was just a head full of all of this stuff and you know, when you're in Pakistan or Afghanistan and at any moment you could be confronted with a terrorist bombing and walking through blood and death and, you know, and, and that's... And then go back home and have a meal and... <laughs> oh, I was watching television now. I, was, I mean, that when that world enters your world, it's it, it's so strange. And, um, and you, I didn't have control over so many things, but I could control time. I became obsessed with time. I would, I, I would measure every minute of the day, and I had this one period where I would, um, I had to be absolutely on time for everything, and I became obsessed when I was in back in Beijing after I'd been in and out of these other places, and I'd come back home to Beijing. There's a little gym around the corner I used to go to, and used to open at six a.m., and my day was dependent, the the my well-being, and how I was going to get through the day was dependent on being at that gym the moment it opened. One minute late, my whole day was ruined. Everything had to be... And, and I would be waking up at night. Okay, okay, I've got 20 minutes. Okay, it's, it's 5.30. Okay, 10 minutes. Off. Timing it down to the second to be there when that opened. What on earth did it matter if I was at the gym one minute later? I can see that now, but at the time I was obsessed mm-hmm. with the management of, of time and controlling time. I'd go to sleep and I would... Um, before I'd go to sleep, I'd be in bed planning my next day. What I'm going to do, where I'll be, what I will say. If I see this person, what will I say to them? But that, you know, going, I need to control all of these things. And then get to a point where I barely slept. I mean, I went through about six months where I probably averaged about, you know, an hour or night. Yeah, that's not good. You know, because I'd, Been there. I'd go to sleep, wake up, go to sleep, wake up, 10 minutes, five minutes, oh, over, and then wake up. And you know, I look at the, the clock. Oh, the clock, the worst. The clock, the clock, the clock. Always look at the clock. And then, you know, if I'm late for the gym or, you know, if I was in Pakistan, I'd be, I'd be there going, I need to get up and go to work. I need to do something right now. I've been asleep for 10 minutes. That's enough, you know. And, uh, and it's amazing how that just becomes real to you. That's mm. your reality. Yeah. I look back at it now and I go, man, you were just totally out there. But that's what I was going through. That was my life. Well, I'm, I'm I'm grateful that you I'm grateful that you did. There's um there's one line in the book that that really really struck me because it um, though we have very different stories, 
it is also the moment where the healing started to come into my life when as a core idea when I you chose to see yourself as someone with a future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was this I was inspired by something that Albert Camus said and he said, you know, I choose not to stand apart from the world. And that really resonated with me. I have a choice. I probably had chosen at various stages of my life to stand apart from the world, to walk through the world braced for a hit, you know, with the armour on, ready to go into battle. I had to be better, smarter, faster than everybody else around me. And I was going into battle every day. I'll work longer. I'll read more. I'll be up longer, you know. (laughs) And, And now the idea that I could embrace the world, live with the legacy of history and not be a prisoner of that history, that I was a person with a future. And this is what was stolen from Aboriginal people. It wasn't just that land was taken and our rights were extinguished. Our future was stolen because we were seen as a relic. We were seen as a people frozen in time. One of the great things of liberalism is that it is an engine of progress. It is about the future. I was very influenced by Hegel, the German philosopher, and his ideas of history, that history was a constant search for freedom and recognition, and that there was an arc of history that would deliver you to the the ethical state, the absolute spirit, when we would find the freedom and recognition that humanity seeks. And that was, that was the engine of history that he saw. We were locked out of that. Our history ended as we were seen. We were a people for whom the pillow was being smoothed for our extinction. We were, we were a relic. We were something from another era. We weren't seen as people who had a place in a modern world. And I had to marry in this book the promise of the enlightenment, of liberalism, of universal humanity and progress and a move towards a time of freedom and recognition when we will be able to complete the search for those things with also a timelessness of the dreaming. I had to marry those two ideas that I was not someone whose future ended when Captain Cook arrived. We were not a people who were doomed. We were a people of ancient tradition and part of a modern world. And I had a future. And that's really what the book is about. We are a people of progress. We are a modern people in this world and a people with a future and that Australia's future comes from our place in in this land. We are... um let me do some maths here, Stan. We're 18 weeks away from welcoming a new Australian to this world. Ah, oh, lovely. Uh, he will, or she, we don't know, yeah. will be born into a 2019 Australia and it'll be the only Australia that they've, they've known. And as we were speaking before, when I think about what's happened since the day you were born mm. to now in this country, I can only hope that the world that this kid grows up into despite its significant mm. challenges and despite the enormous change that we are all going to see mm. in the next 20, 30 years, is pretty close to what you described, man. Yeah, <laughs> because, well, it's a place, because it's a place of collective healing. Yeah. And with collective healing, 
there's there's growth. I hope so. But I tell you, we have to fight for it. You know, we really have to fight for it. Freedom matters. Democracy matters. It has its faults, undoubtedly. It can so easily be corrupted, but it matters. And if we choose to live in a world where we recognise the rights of individuals when we live in a world of universal humanity, we need to fight for that idea. And that's under threat. It's under threat from rising authoritarianism and sectarianism and nationalism and tribalism and all the things that want to separate us off and divide us up and put us against each other. Um, And it's under threat because of a new technology that could supersede us. We don't hold on to the world without a fight. So it's going to be your child's battle, you know. (laughs) We'll have done our bit. Uh, well, you know, you're, you're a bit older than me, but you seem to still be fighting, man. So I've got a couple of years left of me yet. Uh, Stan, I really, I mean, I didn't even get to half of the stuff I wanted to talk oh, to you good. about. No, it's, that, that's a good conversation. You don't have to worry about, you know, it's not, not a checklist. No, it's not. Uh, but we can do that next time. Yeah. Uh, I'm so stoked you made time in your day. You're a very busy man. I Thanks, appreciate getting an hour and a half out of your day, man. What really a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, brother. That was Stan Grant. His new book is called Australia Day. It's worth getting. It's out right now. Have a read. Even if the idea of reading a book from Stan Grant confronts you, it's probably a good idea as to why you should read it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much to Rachel Barrett, the producer of Lives, the bringing together era of people, first of her name. Thank you very much to Andy Ma, my audio producer that cut this together, and Toe Hider for all the music. Thank you for being in touch and I really appreciate again all the ratings and reviews on the iTunes store. It really helps us out. I'll talk to you on Friday. I hope you have a fantastic week. I hope you go away and think about the stuff that Stan and I talked about today and hopefully it stimulates a bit of conversation in your own society and your own group of people that you talk with every day. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 